Broadcasting live from Jeff Bridges' jarringly naked face, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Seamus Connolly. And I'm Agent Gawain. Ooh, love it. Thank you. <laughs> I don't think there is one of those in no? the movie. So, or at least not that we know about. Because uh, there's, there's Galahad and Arthur and Merlin and somewhere uh, in the Lancelot. Mix, right? There's so many spin-off Scarrett, so much spin-off potential. Yeah, I think I think we got a lot of room to grow, which we are talking about, of course, Kingsman, the Secret Service, and Kingsman 2, the Golden Circle today for our main segment uh, in preparation for next week where we're going to be talking about the new prequel to those films, The King's Man. But first, we're going to get on with some news. Uh, news starting with some of the weirdest BS I've ever heard from, once again, the Oscars. Apparently, the Academy Awards are not going to broadcast eight awards that they previously have. Documentary short, film editing, makeup and hairstyling, original score, production design, animated short, live action short, and sound. This is moronic, obviously. I don't know who this is catering uh, to. I don't understand it at all. It's They're just trying to, like shorten up the Oscars like broadcast and they're taking out editing. That's yeah, insane. But, yeah. Cut directing and screenplay while you're at it. Just get yeah, rid of exactly. Them. It's just about how many times they can have superstars faces on screen. What are they, what are they going to fill the time with? Is it going to be shorter? Or are they just going to have like more like musical numbers to replace the important things like the, score of a movie it's one of the most important things of anything if, if this is the cost of having hosts back it's not worth it like they're alienating their like i don't like the oscars i have a lot of problems with the oscars but ultimately like the oscars do serve and we're going to talk about this a lot when we cover them to celebrate the craft of filmmaking and that's important and good it's important to celebrate craftsmen and the core demographic that watches the Oscars gets that, and the people that they're trying to court with this decision don't. And I don't understand who's going to watch an Oscar ceremony that's three hours versus the three and a half hours it would be if they if they included these eight awards. It, it just doesn't make any sense, you know? I feel like any fun or whatever, you know, they're going to try, they're going to put in banter. They have three, like, comedian actor hosts for a reason again like they're gonna put they're gonna do bits they're gonna you know have some weird twitter stuff but all of that on the actual broadcast i'm just gonna be like counting the seconds and minutes that sound design isn't getting talked about in in something so vital to filmmaking or even makeup and hairstyling that's just like a to me feels like one of the flashier ones like best actor and best actress things that people want to see because that's what people are interested in is just like things that look you know nice and fancy but they're just and, it's it's insane yeah. I feel like things also like production design, score, and makeup and hairstyling are things that people who might not normally care about the Oscars tune in to watch and learn about because, like, there are groups outside of movie people who care about those things. There are music people and there are designers and there are makeup and hairstyle people, you know? Exactly, exactly. It's stupid. It's really, really dumb. I hope they reverse this decision. They're getting a lot of public pressure from it. I really, really recommend Patton Oswalt has a huge Twitter thread going right now. Oh, about really? how stupid this is and 
Because, you know, Patton Oswalt loves movies. Like, he is a giant oh, yeah. nerd. And it's all about, like, how important they are and how they impact the experience of filmmaking or watching a film. And not to mention, also, I know we're talking a lot about the actual craft awards, but things like animated short, live action short, and documentary short are also super, super important. That's, mm. you know, the most exposure those shorts are going to get, usually. And so it's important for people to be to like kind of even know what is being talked about because short filmmaking is already so dismissed mm-hmm. in the public eye. I think to be honest, there have been there have been because I I like to check out the usually I like to check out at least the animated shorts uh, if I can and you know sometimes I'm lucky enough to you know get into a theater and do like see the whole program of them all. But the music box shorts programs. Yeah, you know, or the you know the Davis Theater would like to like to throw oh, yeah. put on one of those on like a weekday, but you know, so sometimes that would be literally some of my favorite things being up for awards that year would be in the shorts category, just because it's like you said, incredibly dismissed like automatically, so it's hard for them to get the recognition that they so rightfully deserve, and a lot of times things are skewed by the politics of the Academy and the the people that run the actual show of the Oscars that it, it feels a little more hollow in years past, so this just feels like an even bigger slap in the face that they're just completely off the table now for anybody who wants to watch something like that. Totally. But let's hope they reverse the decision and we'll keep you guys updated on it as the situation unfolds and at the very least we'll talk about it during our actual Oscars episode. Mm. Up next for news, we did a pop culture reference a few weeks ago about Activision Blizzard, which was being bought by Microsoft, who owns, of course, also Xbox. And in addition to that, we also talked about the many controversies and problems that happened not only in the video game industry as a whole, but also specifically with Activision Blizzard and their toxic workplace culture that we were saying we really hoped now that Xbox and Microsoft were buying them that they were going to kind of get involved and put a stop to that. But There's been this viral thing recently that since we talked about it so recently, I felt like we should bring up where they're sending out all of this like anti-union misinformation. Uh, And it's just a really interesting, like one of the slides from one of the law firms that Microsoft has hired to send out to the employees and scare them from being in this union that's potentially brewing is talking about how unions exploit and make employees lazy, non-productive, and inefficient, footloose and fancy-free activists, anti-establishment rebels who oppose society structure and management. Like, just really, that really... That is insane. ...going after people who are looking to unionize, I think, just in a way that's really tone-deaf and, frankly, sinister. Honestly, that is... is sinister's a good word for that, I think. I, I think we can firmly say that the Pop Culture Reference Podcast is pro-union in every way, including in industries that are insanely public about the abuse that the higher-ups in the industry put their workers through. It's almost insane that they are putting the idea of lesser productivity on the list of reasons why you shouldn't fight for your rights as a worker. That is absolutely insane to me. Especially when two of our pop culture references in the last month, I think, have been about the way that video game employees are exploited and the way and how toxic that culture is. And the fact that 
employees when they're not being protected by the companies that they work for are trying to stand up for themselves and this is like it's important to broadcast that this is the kind of treatment that they're getting i think when we talk about this kind of stuff i agree it's it's insane and inappropriate and disgusting and hopefully something that isn't going to influence too many of the people that this is directly affecting i mean i would i would hope that something like this would push somebody further into the idea of joining a union to protect themselves because it is very obvious that Activision Blizzard, even if they are bought by Microsoft, is trying to cover themselves before anything else, and that is very clear. 100%, yeah. But I think it's time for us to move on to our main segment of the episode, the first two Kingsman films. Let's do it. For today's main segment, we're going to be talking about Kingsman, The Secret Service, and Kingsman 2, The Golden Circle. I think kind of like we've been doing most of the time when we have these kind of two-parter main segments like we had with Uncharted the last few weeks. Up top, do we want to do general franchise thoughts? Then when we break down into each movie, we'll go into spoilers. Yeah, that sounds great, man. Well, what what is your experience with the Kingsman franchise, Seamus? I was definitely late to the game on Kingsman. I don't think I saw the first one in the theater. I Actually, I know I definitely didn't see the first one in the theater because I didn't even really know what it was until it was already streaming somewhere and uh, somebody showed me. I can't even remember who showed me that, but a good friend, damn it, because that movie is amazing. And I think that is maybe one of my favorite action movies in general of the last you know how i don't remember when the first one came out for 2015 of the last seven years i oh, think oh no wait that's awful i hate that <laughs> i hate that movie seven years old oh my god that just sunk in for me too Jeez. but i regardless of our weird moment right there that movie is amazing and i mean one of the best action movies Definitely, I mean, the best spy movie. I'm sorry, James Bond, you really dropped the ball the last, you know, however many years. But I I genuinely think Kingsman, and I know the next one is going to be a prequel and more of that. I mean, hopefully they expand a little bit into the future of it, I I hope. But it's a franchise that I want to see, like, continue for a long time because I think there's so much creativity in it. It is incredible fun so so many spy movies are sad jason bourne james bond oh no my wife slash girlfriend is totally dead and i'm sad about it spy (laughs) movies and these are just like fast paced incredibly well edited the music is on point and the characters are just incredibly fun I mean, say what you will about the second movie. I still, I think I enjoy it, obviously not as much as the first, but the characters they bring in, the original characters for the second one, great fun on screen. Lots of fun there, and the dialogue is very quippy and British and lovely, and I can't wait for the new one. It's funny, I think, that you bring up it being one of the best spy movies of the last while, because... I have I think I said this during our Spectre episode too, where th- in 2015 three James Bond movies came out: <laughs> Spectre, Kingsman, and Mission Impossible Five. And James Bond was the worst Bond out <laughs> yeah. of the three movies. <laughs> oh, how sad is that? Goodness God! Because I saw this um, in high school. I reviewed it for the newspaper, so I went opening weekend with my folks, and I remember 
I, I'm going to toot my own horn because I was very proud of this headline, Seamus. It was, violence in Kingsman will leave you shaken, not deterred. Light golf clap. That is Thank wonderful. That you. is be- awesome. I love it. Because the crux of my of my review, and it's uh, going to be something that we talk about more in this, is that um, I do think that I think... The, especially the first one, is a little bit confused about some things tonally and, and thematically, which we'll get into in the actual talk. But I think that Kingsman's cultural impact actually is kind of understated because I think that it really, really opened back up the door for the irreverent, hyper-violent, R-rated action film because those are back mm. and they weren't for a really long time. Everything was PG 13 for a really, really long time. Like the entire time I remember going to movies, really action movies were PG 13. And it, like once Kingsman happened, like I felt like the floodgates opened. Like, I don't think they're, I don't know if there's a Deadpool without King, the success of Kingsman. Wow. Interesting. But I mean, there is a lot of that like hyper, yeah, like you're saying hyper violent, but like very gleefully done and, playfully done that i think you're you're right there is some of that weird connective tissue there and i mean think about something like james gunn's the suicide squad like that is so such a weird film and Mm. such a a like the first suicide squad came out around the same time as kingsman but it was this like pared down digestible pg-13 action whatever even though it was marketed as this like sick violent whatever (laughs) and Kingsman, like, I think that Kingsman does mark that cultural shift where it starts being okay to have R-rated action films and that audiences will show up to them and won't be turned off by them. And, I mean, like, it it helps that Kingsman is actually, like, a very well-done movie, so people were like, oh, there's, like, the stigma that kept that kind of hyper-violence away that it was either going to be, you know, trashy and not good enough or distracting from a movie that could be, you know, better than what it would be otherwise, but... Kingsman is that kind of great middle ground where it does have a little bit of that tonal confusion like you were saying before, but it's still like such a fun and original, fresh way to do a movie like that, that it it, it turned that key. It did open those floodgates. And I'm super duper excited to talk more specifically about it, but I feel like that's, I feel like that's all I could say without getting into the specific <laughs> uh, Kingsman of it all is there anything you want to do before we move into spoilers no man i I think we should just jump right in yeah um so this is spoilers for kingsman the secret service a film that i do really genuinely adore warts and all Mm. because i like i said i want to talk about just because we were just finished talking about it the fact that my big problem with the first Kingsman film is that I think it's trying simultaneously to, like, condemn things that it's doing. It's, like, it's not the Deadpool problem of lampshading something and then doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. I think it's trying to condemn things that it's simultaneously glorifying. So, because it's... it's uh, the, Kingsman exists in a weird realm where it's kind of a parody of James Bond, but it's also a straightforward, like, if a comedy, it is still a straightforward, serious action film. Mm-hmm. So... There are a couple of things that really, like, kind of get me. And so, like, it's obviously making fun of, like, this idea of, like, sexual gratification as a reward for for saving the world. Like, that's what it's poking <laughs> yeah. fun at, but it's also, again, glorifying it. But the thing that I really have a problem with, the one, the thing that really kind of puts me over the edge, is a very, it's, it's very unpopular whenever this movie gets brought up, because this is what many consider to be the standout feature of this film. I think I, I know where you're going with this. I hate the church scene. I hate ah, it. Ah, yes. 
I think that the entire point of that scene, which, okay, so brief discussion of the Kingsman plot. Sam Jackson, he's <laughs> Steve Jobs. He's got SIM cards in everybody's phones. It's going to make everybody go crazy and kill each other. Yep. Um, yes. Yeah, you got it. That's it. He's got a lisp. You missed that part. Yeah, he's got a list. And he's got cool hats. He, yeah, um, yeah, he's eating McDonald's in like a really threatening way at one point. It's at peak. Really good well, stuff. We got to come back to Sam Jackson. Yeah, he's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. fantastic in this. Oh, yeah. So he tests it out by basically using, not. it's not called the Westboro Baptist Church, but it's the Westboro Baptist Church. Yep, um, that's what they are. To, he lures Colin First character there and is going to have them kill him. That's how he's going to take care of this spy that's, that's kind of getting in his way. And... The point of the scene in 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 the plot is supposed to be building up how evil Sam Jackson is, and you're supposed to feel hor like because what happens is Colin Firth, this highly trained killer, takes out everybody in this church, like just in a horrific, violent way. And it's supposed to be like the idea, I think, as it's written, is that you're supposed to be like horrified by that violence, that you're supposed to be mm-hmm. like, oh man. How, like, 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 because when Colin Firth comes to, essentially, he is so horrified by what he does. And they even cut to Eggsy being like, no, like, you know. Right, yeah. But it's all set to Freebird, and, and, like, you're clearly supposed to be having a ton of fun with it. Yeah. And I just hate that. I just, I think it's so tonally dissonant from what the movie is actually trying to accomplish. It's not that I don't admire it as a technical achievement, and as a, it is a good action sequence in that it is entertaining, but I do not think that it is an ultimate service of the story, and I frankly morally disagree with the way that it's kind of structured. Yeah, man, because I definitely, because that is one of the biggest, uh, you're, you're, you're right when you say it's like the biggest go-to scene when people talk about this movie, because it's, it is like super hyped up and like bright and all of the camera angles and the way they're like following all this gore and mayhem is is it's it really is it's like a video game it's like look at how bloody and disgusting and violent this can get and it it does like it, i agree with you the moral standing behind it all is is just not there when it's supposed to be like a fun awesome part in this movie when i think that actual scene to me i don't know you might be on board with this too is the bar scene in the beginning or closer to the beginning that's the real moment where that should be it's like you know the the bullies show up it's like the people you are gonna see get messed up real specifically by this trained guy and definitely gets overshadowed by what is supposed to be like that moment of horror and frankly i you know i do get that it is like a a very fun and fast-paced action scene but once you get on the other side of it and think about it for like a little more than the few seconds you have to think about it when like you're in the thick of that moment and kind of in for the ride it it definitely is a little out of place well a lot out of place and i think that like ultimately i do think the movie is worse for it however i still adore this movie for all of the things it does super well and like you were talking about that bar scene is incredible because it's (laughs) so great it's a great twist it's entertaining it's fun it's satisfying like you said the action itself is good and it's a great character moment it's a great like Mm -hmm. it's action it's because it's not it technically like this the church scene is technically in the service of like oh look how horrific this is even though that doesn't translate but that bar scene it's about the relationship between harry and eggsy which is the core of the film yeah 
and I think that it's just a, yeah that is definitely a standout sequence to me as well just a quick a quick thought do you think the church scene would maybe play a little better if maybe Colin Firth isn't under the spell because I know he's like affected by the phone sim card mind control and he's like getting his crazy no, because pistol I think, thing off and I think it just has to be shot differently I think it has to less be less gloriously and I think I, mean, that, ha- I, yeah. I don't think free like the free bird no, thing yeah. is I think really what it totally. does it for me it's not freaking the opening of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 you yeah, know to- yeah exactly it's again I like this movie and I like the way the action is shot in it generally i think has a very unique style that is carried over into the second film mm-hmm. which i really like this weird video game aesthetic yeah yeah like hyper digital but like in a way that's not ugly like you think about like marvel stuff where the camera just goes wherever it wants to go and it's like the blocking isn't important and yeah. it doesn't feel like it has its own style it just just kind of feels like polygons smashing into each other kingsman it, it, kind of almost like a scott pilgrim even though it's nothing like scott pilgrim's style is the artifice is part of the point which i like about yeah, the totally. kingsman action style i wonder how that'll play in the new one where it's set in a time that doesn't have like digital technology oh, yeah that that might be a little more noticeable, I would say, but I I don't know. It's been so many years since a Kingsman, so they might have just really bumped it all up to a level of just, like, naturalistic background. I hope not, because what's the point, then? What's the point of that being a Kingsman movie? Like, I like the idea of having a Kingsman movie that's set during a not, like, during a different time period. I don't know. We'll talk more about that, I guess, when we find out what happens next week. Yeah, straight up. I'm I'm just so curious on that front too. I mean, I I'm in my mind I'm also thinking about like I'm sure they have some kind of idea for a uh, a Kingsman 3, whatever that. Oh, I mean like the Return we'll, of Eggsy. We'll talk about that in the end of our 2 review of course, because of like they, they set I think they set up very deliberately a, a sequel at the end of 2. But let's talk about this one and talk about the characters, I think and the performances because this has such the reason this movie, to me, works so well, other than the fact that it's just entertaining and fun, is the fact that it has a really robust, enjoyable cast of characters mm-hmm. that I'm genuinely invested in, which is something that action movies don't have very often anymore for me. Because this is the first time I ever remember seeing Taron Egerton, who is fantastic in the lead role of Eggsy. Absolutely. I th- I mean, me too. was he even in much before this? I, I um, definitely wasn't on my radar until I saw this one. I, I mean, there are movies that I can name that he was in before this, but, like, I didn't know who he was right, at right. all. And, I mean, now I think he's a spectacular actor. I think he should have been nominated for an Oscar for Rocket Man and probably should have won it, frankly. I and, fully agree. Yeah, that movie is incredible. And so, like, he's he's quickly becoming one of the actors I look forward to seeing and stuff the most. And this, yeah, this is was his breakout performance, which is a great performance. And his chemistry with Colin Firth, which we've already mentioned, is off the charts. Yeah, seeing them together in those intro scenes, the bar scene, obviously, the the first uh, stepping foot into the tailor and like going into the secret spy back room place, is, it, it, it's incredible, them together. And then, of course, the film is only as good as its villain, which has two really good ones, I think. The aforementioned Samuel L. Jackson with his lisp and his multicolored flat-brim hats. <laughs> Um, like he is just swinging for the fences in this movie. Oh and yeah, he's knocking it out because <laughs> clearly he's like, "What if I just did my own crazy version of a Bond villain?" And it totally works. 
Is it is that just because he is such a damn talent? Because it, it really is the most bizarre, cartoon, almost over-the-top, cartoonishly insane Bond villain, but it's just so well done. Like I said, he, he is like, in like there's real intimidation in a lot of his performance in this, even though I'm like, there are such silly moments with him in this movie too. It's like, it's very equally stacked. Well, the fact that he is so disgusted by blood that he vomits when he sees <laughs> yeah. it, I think that's so funny. Yeah, that's incredible, especially, uh, I mean, we also, uh, we didn't even mention at the end of that church scene how he, he just, I, well, I guess there are spoiler weird things that it's weird how to say this, but... When he shoots Colin Firth in the head at the end of the... Yeah, of, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. His incredible sword legs henchman lady. Ah, uh, uh, I think the henchman's name is Gazelle, as played by Sophia Butella from Atomic Blonde and uh, the third Star Trek which I can't remember the name of right now. It's crazy how they wrote in a character with sword legs for all three of those movies, huh? <laughs> I mean, she is a great henchman. Honestly, she I think she belongs right up there with a, like any real, like a Jaws. Yes, or... an odd job, for yeah. sure. Just somebody with such an insanely weird niche, but is actually like really cool to, to play with in a fight scene. And I think she does a great job considering what little personality that character is actually given. Oh, yeah. She doesn't really talk at all No, much. not really. I mean... I, I think if I had any single note on this screenplay other than, like, the church scene... I, th- I don't even think the church scene is a problem with the screenplay. I think it's a problem with the execution. Mm-hmm. Similar to the way that the um the sexual gratification is also portrayed. Sure, sure. Um, I think on paper it's fine, but... I think that it would be nice because Valentine, Sam Jackson, and Gazelle are set up as foils, as like this weird mirror image of Harry Hart, Galahad, Sr., Colin Firth, and Mm -hmm. Eggsy. It would be nice if she had more of an arc going on because she is Eggsy's foil. Yeah, but, you know, she just kind of gets, she gets to do her fun henchman fights and that's really all she gets there. Yeah, and I still enjoy her a lot, and there's there's no, com- it's not really a complaint, it is just something that I do wish there were more of, but they have so many other really good supporting characters. Uh, I really like the character of Roxy, uh, who is one of the other trainees going in with Eggsy into the, like, weird YA Hunger Games <laughs> training say, that is the first half of this movie. We never even talk about, like, the weird, uh cube version of the first half of full metal jacket where they're just like yeah filling their bunk with water and making them fake murder dogs like it's crazy (laughs) yeah it's i think that half of like i was really surprised when i saw this movie and that was the first half of it i was not i was going in for like a spy movie and it turned out to be this interesting training YA thing. And it works really well. They're really good at it. And I, I like the characters in there. There's Charlie, who's the antagonistic. Yeah, the bully again. Yeah. Uh, not to mention, of course, also at Kingsman HQ, we get Michael Caine's Arthur and the Q of this universe, Mark Strong's Merlin. Honestly, Mark Strong, one of the best actors i mean he's such a good character in this he's so maybe i just like mark strong a lot but i feel like whenever i see him i fall in love with whatever he's doing well he's extremely versatile i think i see you see him in things all the time and he's always a different role i mean even think about something like sure he does plenty of spy movies but this against his role in like tinker taylor soldier spy where he's just like a dweeby 
middle-aged <laughs> British dude, you know, you know? Sure, sure. I feel like I've seen him in, like, like fantasy things as, like, a really over-the-top kind of villain. Yeah. I mean, he is insane in Sherlock Holmes. He's the... Oh, yeah. Blackwell in Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. But he's great in this, and I think he's also great in the second one, which we'll talk about, because he makes that character so likable and have so much personality i think in a way that is uncharacteristic of that kind of character like obviously q is often quirky in the bond films mm-hmm. not just the new one but like that the even the old q yeah but he's so cool like i like that that he's like he's handsome and cool in a way that q usually isn't q's usually the nerd yeah exactly he's like that q but also like with that field agent deadly status that you, you can tell he can pull it all off because q because being the q being the merlin that's like an honor that's a that's a oh, promotion yeah. you know that's higher think, up as opposed to i think in the bond films it's played off as like oh this guy sits in the lab all day oh the computer <laughs> you know yeah like oh he got in trouble he got transferred to q branch or something and then you know they have their jokes and then i'm trying to think i feel like there's somebody i'm not mentioning Oh, Mark Hamill. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's wild. That, that's a lot of fun. That's a lot of fun. I also, I I definitely remember, because he plays a scientist. Yeah, he's like a professor that Sam Jackson's character <laughs> needs, needs to um, execute his plan. And... I can't say the the exact line, but when Colin Firth goes to interrogate Mark Hamill's character and then Sam Jackson activates the chip in his head and Sam Jackson is so annoyed at having to do that. He's like, I had to kill Professor Arnold. I love (laughs) Professor Arnold. Oh God, yeah, that is what a hell of a scene! My God, but I—I I was also just gonna bring up. I—I I briefly skimmed the Kingsman graphic novel at some point, and for mm-hmm. whatever reason, it really sticks out of my head that I'm pretty sure it's just Mark Hamill as Mark Hamill in the comic book. Yes, it that is. is. That is just a lot of fun. That's some pretty fun stuff there. I remember when my mom and I, when my parents and I went to see this movie. My when we were leaving the movie, she was like, "That was Mark." Hamill, he looks terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that, like, but he's, I mean, I don't think he looks that, I don't think he looks as bad as he does it. Like, in this movie, he looks worse because he's supposed to look worse. Yeah, that's true, that's true. I think that's a credit to his acting and to the job they did with him. Not that Mark Hamill doesn't look different, he certainly does, than he did in the 80s or whatever. Oh yeah, for sure. I, he, he has a fun opening where where he's being held hostage in like that that cabin that ski yeah, cabin yeah, the ski lodge yeah. and Gazelle comes and just cuts that first secret agent in half. Yeah, I oh, love it. I you just got me thinking of like head popping things and the great <laughs> climactic sequence where like Obama and the Queen of England get their heads popped like vaguely on screen. It's really an insane way to end a movie is yeah. to have all your world leaders' heads <laughs> explode. Yeah, it's it's really insane. And I I don't even remember if they even talk about it that much in the second one, do they? I guess we have I don't, to. I've, 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 I think I've seen the second one twice, I think, yeah. And I don't think they really do. I mean, they reference the events of the first movie, but I don't think they talk about, like, man, Obama was, <laughs> was in Valentine's Pocket, huh? You know? <laughs> Oh God! But we'll talk. I mean, we'll talk more yeah, about yeah. the second film and the way that it kind of deals with similar archetypes, maybe less 
or more overtly, depending mm. on how you interpret it. Oh, the 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 princess at the end. The, you were, I think you've been like dancing around that a little bit. Yeah, because they set that up really well. That she like that the princess is is like she's a moral uh, leader and she's not going to give in to Valentine, so he's going to lock her away in a cell. And then when Eggsy comes to save her, she's she uh, offers him the back door as his <laughs> reward for. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. Yeah, if he saves the world, and I th- like it's it's a good joke in theory. It is, but again. I think the execution of it is glor. Instead of like feeling like it's actually poking fun at James Bond, it's like, oh, get it. It just feels like it's glorifying it. Now, I do think there are things that are done in the second film that make me feel better retroactively about it. Yeah, which we will talk about. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I guess final thoughts on the first one in general before we go on to the second one. I think we really covered the the main the main stuff we needed to here. You did allude to the McDonald's talk, uh, the McDonald's <laughs> oh, scene, yeah, yeah. which is. Maybe the best scene in this movie, if it's I'm great. being honest. It's it's great. Where Colin Firth has a, a Big Mac with, with Sam Jackson. <laughs> and it's just so entertaining, and they're both so good, and they're both having so much fun in this weird genre film. I really do adore this movie, warts and, like I said, warts and all. And I don't want it to seem like the few problems I do have with it overshadowed the actual fun and enjoyment I get out of it. Yeah, I, I don't think that comes across like that at all. I think I think the idea that a lot of people associate their enjoyment of this movie with that crazy fight scene in the church, I, I get where you're coming from with that. But so much of this movie, and I completely agree with you, like everything else about this movie is so good that it is it doesn't get masked by that one, you know, pretty major thing that people usually kind of go to with this but everything else is just so well done i'm i'm right in the same boat with you even with all the problems that does have one of my favorite movies of like the last 10 years let's say in general i think it was it's it's up there for like just amount of fun had at the movies definitely but let's do spoilers for kingsman 2 the golden circle yeah let's do it we got Jack Donaghy's girlfriend is here doing some weird stuff in the jungle. That is an amazing way to talk about <laughs> Julianne Moore. Um, that's that's the, literally <laughs> the craziest thing you've ever said on this podcast, Janice. Oh, that's the only way I think of her, Garrett, truly. That can't be true. <laughs> I, I, I want to say that's like the first thing I ever saw her in ever. <laughs> it was in the 30 Rock. I get. I mean, it's not that I don't believe you because that timeline like <laughs> yeah, kind of lines that clocks, up, right? But I just like that's just like she's an Academy Award-winning <laughs> actor. <laughs> it's just like how I think of Jim Rash as the dean, even though he too is an Academy Award-winning filmmaker. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think those two things are on the same level, but you know, I'll I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Oh my goodness! She, well, yeah, she's doing stuff in this movie though. She's she is insane in this movie. Yeah. this movie's insane. <laughs> um, this movie is truly in, like a bonkers concept. No, yeah, they turned everything up to eleven, including the like the insanity part of it all, like the crazy sh- stuff. And I think most of her name is Poppy, and she Poppy. has Poppy Land, right? Where Jeez. which is like because she has to live outside of America because of her life as a drug kingpin she has built this um, this small town americana village in the middle of the south american mountains i think am i right about that yeah i think you got that right and there's like a bowling alley and a diner 
where yeah. you can eat human flesh yeah. and uh, lots a, of hair, fun. a barber shop, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, lots of fun set pieces for fights, you know? And she's doing a great job in this movie. Uh, I think she does genuinely rival Sam Jackson's, like, energy. Oh, I, sure. She's not doing as much herself that's weird. Like, Sam Jackson's weird because he's he's dressing funny and he's doing the lisp and yeah. everything. And he's got, as opposed to Julianne Moore, who is just insane. Like, her character, <laughs> yeah. just the writing and the intensity of the performance is insane. Totally, totally. Because her introduction is throwing a guy into a meat grinder and then feeding him to another guy. Yeah, you gotta love that when they when they hit you with that so early with that stuff, man. It's it's kind of crazy. Which I do. I mean, like it is disturbing. That is a disturbing piece of this film. I think that's probably the only thing that rivals the church scene in this movie. Is that is that is the is the meat grinder? Because I can't think of anything else in this movie that's that that's that. Like I think this movie does tone down the violence actually, which I appreciate because I think they learned from the first one. But we've greatly expanded our cast of characters in addition to Eggsy and Merlin being back at the beginning. We meet uh, Channing Tatum, yeah. Pedro Pascal, and Jeff Bridges and Halle Berry, who are all the statesmen. <laughs> over in the, uh, the sister organization in the United States, the their secret agency. Yeah, I it, it's it's a little weird if I'm being honest, but you know it's we're I we got a big franchise to fill out here, so we're definitely gonna have some. I I like Channing Tatum in this. You know, I think that's a lot of fun. I think Pedro Pascal is great too. The whole cowboy angle is just so weird to see next to like all the James Bond stuff. But it's it's a lot of fun to see that kind of clash and bounce off each other. My problem with this movie isn't really anything to do with statesmen, though. Like it is, it is clash, but it's intentional. You yeah, know? exactly. That's why you know it's it's fun. I think it's just that at its core, it's not a very good sequel because I don't think that Eggsy's character has very much to do. Yeah, I also think that I am still mad that they killed Roxy um, and still mad like that. Yeah. I get wanting to put them completely on their own, but completely cutting off anything to do with the Kingsman. I do think is jarring and it's too, it's too quick and too, I was going to say for the second movie. I mean, yeah, damn, like, like a down. third movie. Sure. Yeah. But I think that there were, there could have been other ways to bring in the Statesman because the real reason that they bring in the Statesman is because they need an excuse to bring back... This is something I was not sold on when the marketing told me that it was happening, but mm-hmm. I think is actually one of the better written parts of the movie, which is the return of Colin Firth's character from the dead. Yeah, a little... I still... I think I maybe need to see it again from... Like, it's still a little weird to me, if I'm being honest, but I, I didn't hate it by the end of it. I wish they didn't do it still, believe yeah, me, because me I think that it undermines his sacrifice, his role in Eggsy's life. Mm -hmm. It undermines Eggsy in the character arc that he went in the first film. But I do think that the character work that they do do with Harry in this film is really interesting and effective. And the fact that you learn about his backstory where he was going to be an ophthalmologist and that he has this obsession with butterflies and that, like... Basically, they kind of recraft Harry, and he gets to kind of relearn and go back to who he used to be before he was a spy. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that 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 is an interesting part of it, I will say, because we kind of, you know, we meet him in the first film, and he's such an interesting and cool person, and then really he dies so suddenly and pretty early into the movie in the first it, one. Well, it's dies. It's the midpoint whatever. event. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like really fast, but, you know, it is interesting to get that background in a way that isn't just like flashbacks or a prequel movie or, you know, something that is a little more easily fed to us it's it's a it's an interesting angle and i understand the desire to bring him back because one of the biggest successes of the first movie is how much you care about the relationship between Mm. eggsy and harry so i think it all kind of works it's just that i do think that the movie there's way too much focus taken away from eggsy and his role and his arc and that the stuff that he's doing is it feels like a big retread of the stuff that he did in the first movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. It's definitely why I I'm thinking so much about a True Kingsman 3 in a lot of ways and how they can kind of recapture what they that that energy from the first one but like really give us more of a sequel that we can chew on for a while cuz I feel like I I saw The Golden Circle once or twice and I never you know, it's no, it's no original Kingsman that I could rewatch the first Kingsman any day. But I don't know. There's something about how they handled Eggsy and the way that it felt like they were trying to give us a lot of that direct connective tissue for that kind of sequel and expel it in like a, a lot of dismissive ways. At the same time, it it feels like they could have done that in a little bit of a they could have handled it a little cleaner. And I'm hoping they can do that when we get to see the character of Eggsy again in wherever they're going to, you know, place that. The best thing that he does in this movie, the best part, I think, is him being a fish out of water. Again, like, he keeps climbing the social ladder, mm. and he's he feels out of place with his new girlfriend, the princess from the first movie, right. meeting her parents. And I think that, like, it's such a cool escalation. I mean, sure, Shrek did it first, but, like... <laughs> This idea of you're taking the already awkward, you know, meet the parents thing and escalating it to the fact that it's royalty and the fact that that is something like Eggsy is so low born that it's it's weird for him to graduate up to that point. But at the same time, it still just puts Eggsy just like Eggsy was this London streets kid that's now come into up into high society in the first film, now he's like a high society kid that's come even further into high society. So <laughs> yeah. it's, again, it's that retread of his arc, but I do just, I genuinely like their relationship and how much he cares about her. Mm-hmm. And it's really obvious that he loves her, that he cares about impressing her parents because they have that great opening sequence outside the Kingsman shop with set to, uh, is it Let's Go Crazy? I, it's a Prince yeah, song, I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. And he's in the cab and that he's fighting Charlie with his big mechanical arm. Right, the mechanical arm. I forgot about that. And that's like a really fun opening sequence, but then it is concluded by him jumping into a sewer to get back to his back to his girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. So I really like that element of it. I think it's a really fun way to open the film with him and not to mention the fact that then he has more personal stakes later when Poppy's uh, drug plan starts to take effect, which we haven't even talked about. Right, God. She's laced all illegal drugs going into the United States as a way to hold all drug users hostage, 
there is a Fox News guzzling president in the Oval Office <laughs> that is happy to let during a time when hospitals are overrun and millions of Americans are being affected by it. He's just happy to to let them all die for like his ego. Weird how that is, huh? Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I, I've never heard of such a thing. The movies. Fiction. <laughs> <laughs> And this is it is worth noting that this movie came out pre-pandemic, of course. Oh, yeah. Um, so just like, in case anybody's confused on that timeline, <laughs> this movie's from 2017. Lord in heaven. So obviously, it's jabbing at Trump. Yeah. But... I mean, they killed yeah, Obama it, in the first one, too. They had to get the next guy in there. But it was... I think this is, like, insane how th- close they got to Trump's actual reaction to a global <laughs> yeah. health crisis. That's just fascinating to me. Yeah, that's just, like, weird prescience. The last time I watched this movie, I watched it with my sister during the pandemic. And I was like, I don't remember this big part (laughs) of this movie. Because she had never seen them. My sister hadn't until then. Oh, nice. She likes likes an action film, you know? Who doesn't? Lots of people, I guess. Who who doesn't like these movies, though? I feel like people who see them usually like them. They're they're damn popular. Yeah, and and I think they deserve to be. Elton John. Elton John, huh? What a weird <laughs> thing. That's the best part of this movie in my yeah, eyes. It's it, it's it's wild. It's wild, but it's so fun. So Poppy has held has taken captive Elton John, like left over from when Sam Jackson had <laughs> held him captive, and is making him sing songs for her in her own private theater. Um, which is already a funny enough concept, and you have yeah. actually Elton John there. But then at the end of the film, um, she's got these dogs, these robo-dogs. See, I do think, actually, I I know I was just saying during the first film how the artifice of Kingsman is part of the joy of it to me. I do think, especially the third act, is a little over-reliant on CGI. Yeah, definitely. That's a big thing that I remember. It's dripping in it. And I, because her entire compound is so clearly CGI, and her dogs are CGI, and Charlie's arm is CGI, yeah, uh, and it's just everything. But I do, I do like the idea of the robot dogs, and they're about to kill, uh, I think it's Colin Firth, yeah it is. And Elton John jumps in front of him, because they're programmed <laughs> not to kill Elton John. Elton John! And it plays Rocket Man, uh. and then Poppy's like, kill Elton! John, and it's so, it's so funny. funny. It's so funny. Oh God, yeah, that is that's pretty gold. I, I'd say that is maybe the best part of that climax. I mean, it's it's. I like the bit where they're using the, the where the donut is rolling on the ground and they're using it as cover and then shooting through the hole. Oh yeah, yeah. I like that bit. That's a cool bit. Uh, also, R.I.P. Mark Strong. Oh, yeah, doesn't he, that suck, dude? He has, like, an honestly very heartbreaking, like, sacrifice in this movie. Like, I teared up the first time I saw it, It's legit honestly. sad, because he is one of the characters that you are really happy to see return from the first one, and he has, I like, a good amount more to do in this one than the first one, even, I think. And He has a really strong arc, yeah. And, ah, uh, just singing Country Roads, and, ah, def- uh, so sad, so goddamn sad. Apparently, there was supposed to be a stinger at the end, like, after they put Pedro Pascal through the meat grinder. Oh, yeah, Pedro Pascal's a bad guy, by the way. Oh, yeah. Um, After they put Pedro (laughs) Pascal through the meat grinder, apparently, the original plan was Merlin was going to drag himself into the diner with, like, 
dumps for legs. Uh, he's gonna be like, "What did I miss?" or whatever. And I I think that would have sucked. I'm so glad they didn't do that, that would because have been horrible. His death is genuinely impactful yeah. and, and moving. Again, I think the probably the most moving thing in the whole film. He has, I think, he has the best arc probably mm-hmm. in the whole film, other than maybe Harry. But and yeah. I'm I'm sad to see him go, but I think that's the thing that we just we're losing so many people left and right in this movie, and it doesn't. It feels like a finale, and not like I mean, it doesn't feel. If this were the finale of the Kingsman franchise, I wouldn't be happy. But oh, me neither. It feels like the kinds of characters they're killing off, and with what frequency they're killing them off feels like they they didn't earn it i don't think like they you needed another movie before you started killing him off like we said well i mean i almost feel like that's it's like how they did it with harry in the first one it was like a it was a huge it was a crazy left turn that i mean i for my first uh viewing of that movie had no idea that was like i did not see that coming at all like that was such a f- interesting and sudden you know thing to do and obviously they backpedaled on it insanely hard for the sequel but because you have never seen Lord of the Rings, I... or Star Wars, or Harry Potter. What? Or... Harry Potter death does just somebody just, like, get popped in the face out of nowhere? Get out of here. I just mean that the mentor figure has to die, Oh, Seamus. no, of course. But, like, in my mind, I was like, alright, it's gonna be Harry and Eggsy for a-, a couple movies, and not, like... I mean, coming out of that church scene that we have, you know, very not great opinions of like <laughs> you're kind of catching your breath regardless of if you like that scene or not and it's just yeah. such a sudden and fun horrible i mean it's fun and it broke my heart in that first one too because he is so good i'm just picking on you i agree that it it does happen in a very surprising <laughs> yeah. way and there i feel like like you're saying the frequency that these important characters are going in the second one they're trying to recapture a bit and it's not quite there because we know they could backpedal at any instant they'll have mark strong in you know stump prosthetics crawl through the diner if they wanted to thank god somebody pulled the plug on that i want to talk about how good pedro pascal in this movie and how not in this movie channing tatum is yeah right like they that how much marketing was about Channing Tatum and his cowboy character for him to get taken out just immediately yeah. like he's not dead Ugh. he's he's at he's joined Kingsman at the end he's he, he's oh, a yeah. foreign exchange student right <laughs> which is great I think that's so cool and I'm excited to see him in Kingsman 3 doing that like I want that mm. but I think Pedro Pascal plays this role really really well and this is way before Pedro Pascal was anything resembling a household name he had done really well on his on his few episodes of Game of Thrones. Like, he was a fan favorite, mm-hmm. but that was pretty much it. He wasn't the Mandalorian yet. He wasn't anything. Yeah, I sure as hell didn't know who he was. I remember when this movie came out thinking, that should have been Justin Timberlake. Uh, because I Pedro think, Pascal? Yeah, Pedro Pascal's character. I don't know why, <laughs> when I was 19 or whatever, I thought that was the case. But JT needed to show his face in the in the action movies again. Not... I, I don't think I dislike Pedro Pascal or anything. I just think... The star power of, like, Channing Tatum and Jeff Bridges and Halle Berry got me like, whoa, I, I guess I did like him on Game of Thrones, but why is he doing this? Right, right. And now I'm like, <laughs> little did obviously you know. it should be Pedro Pascal. He's so good in this movie. He's playing it really, really well. Actually, there's a character in Mission Impossible that I will bring up when you and I do Mission Impossible Ooh. that I think he's doing kind of a similar performance to in that he is simultaneously, transparently the mole. But he's doing a really good job at, like, playing both roles. Nice. All right. Yeah, nice. 
I, I look forward to that. So I think Pedro Pascal is good at playing both of those sides. I think he is a fun addition to the team, even though he ultimately does betray everybody. And then I he like his turn weird electric whip. Oh, yeah. God, what the weapons in this second one are, are wild. Yeah, because they've got... Um, what's the funny statesman weapon that they have other than the whip? They have they, sonic spurs that incapacitate people. I don't remember. Well, they've got their weird headshot thing. Oh, that yeah. They can, they've got the head, the cure for the headshots. That the, That's how they save Colin Firth. Right. I've been saying Colin Firth this whole time and not Colin Farrell, right? Because that would be really embarrassing. Because uh, we were sure. definitely just talking about Colin Farrell right before the show started. So anyway, uh... <laughs> um, pay attention when you're editing. And if I do say that, leave this in and I apologize. If I don't say that, Seamus, enjoy cutting this later. It's just like I, I, I record you once saying Colin Firth and I just like cut it in every time. <laughs> Colin, Colin Firth. Firth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think final thoughts on Kingsman 2 yeah, Golden I was Circle? Gonna say, I, I keep uh, calling it Kingsman 2 Golden Circle. It's just Kingsman the Golden Circle. Um Oh, you could have fooled me. I was for sure there was a two in there somewhere. Uh I think it's a good movie. And I like the first one better, and I'll probably like this new one better, but I like this movie a lot. Like you said, Elton John is there, it's a blast. Um Yeah, I, I guess I have less I have less to say about the Golden Circle than the first Kingsman, but I still very much enjoy it for what it is. I think kind of like the first Kingsman, I think that things that are done in the third Kingsman, by which I mean like the true Kingsman 3, not uh-huh. the Kingsman, right, right. could genuinely make this movie better for me. I think if they like ret- if they they do things in the next movie that retroactively make me enjoy this one more, kind of like, honestly, that's my relationship with Guardians of the Galaxy, a film I didn't like very much. Uh, when it came out, I thought it was fine. And then the second one came out, and I was like, yes! <laughs> well, um, yeah, I really hope that is the case, too, because I think there's a really good possibility that that could happen. I think, the you know, people in charge of these movies are pretty pretty damn good at it so far, so I think they could, I think they can make that a reality. Totally. I, I completely agree. So, yeah, I'm excited to talk Kingsman with you next week. Seamus, I'm sure we'll sit down. Maybe we should, we should see if we should we can track down any of that uh that statesman whiskey Ooh yeah let's do that because they i know i know um that they have statesman cocktails at amc or at least they did when when king's man came out so i wonder if that if they ever actually produced any of that as an actual label or Ooh, let's pay too much money for probably fine whiskey i mean (laughs) probably like triple the amount that we could just like (laughs) buy a bottle of jack daniels for exactly it's for it's for the movies the movies the movies we we gotta bring up vin at least once is that is it like seinfeld where they have to bring up superman every episode or reference superman in some way sure sure because we do every week whether we mean to or not vin diesel he's always here in our hearts and on my wall actually so staring at you from the wall while you do this show he really is he's looking right at me (laughs) but how about we go on over to the pop culture reference this week garrett sounds good to me For this week's pop culture reference, we're going to be talking about The Gentleman Spy. The Gentleman Spy is a fictional archetype popularized by Ian Fleming's James Bond novels, around which an entire genre of entertainment has sprung up, mostly consisting of film and novels. The Gentleman Spy is usually a smooth-talking, tuxedo-wearing, martini-sipping man who carries eccentric spy gadgets and sleeps with lots of women. 
The womanizing characterization that acts as a pillar to this archetype can be possibly linked to Giovanni Giacomo Casanova as an early example of espionage and romance being practiced in tandem. Though the popularized examples of the gentleman spy are trying to sell this fictionalized lifestyle as something to aspire to, many criticize this archetype as violent, misogynistic, and generally problematic. Around the turn of the millennium, the gentleman spy genre fell out of fashion, with films like the James Bond franchise being seen as outdated and over-the-top. The Austin Powers films show how far out of favor the genre had fallen, with the films presenting Austin Powers as a quintessential gentleman spy and a literally out-of-time relic in a scathing parody of the Bond films. This led to a new type of spy film, popularized by the Bourne trilogy, which the Daniel Craig Bond films eventually emulated, that were much more grounded, gritty, violent, and without much of the glamour or camp usually associated with the gentleman spy. The gentleman spy genre made its strongest comeback in 2015 with the release of Kingsman The Secret Service, which modeled itself after and overtly referenced the gentleman spy films of old, mostly James Bond. The Kingsman franchise is very successful and has brought the genre back into popularity. Recent Bond films have also returned to their genre roots starting with 2012's Skyfall and being escalated even further with Spectre and No Time to Die. Seamus, how do you feel about the way that Bond has kind of reintegrated the gentleman spy tropes into its into its filmmaking? It's definitely really weird, especially, you know, having just recently revisited them with you and how in love we were with the first, uh, you know, with Casino Royale and how, like, as the time went, they kind of slid back into that gentleman spy route and how they kind of just decline as they go considering that i mean well i mean save for skyfall which is is kind of a spike there but i think the farther they slip back into that i think the less it kind of works but i think the most effectively actually it's done is probably in no time to die because i think that skyfall so directly subverts so Mm. publicly subverts like it's like it's like a gentleman spy, but he only has a gun and a radio. We're going old school, baby. Like, <laughs> As opposed to No Time to Die, I think it's just doing it. It's not afraid to just do it. I mean, there are a lot of problems I have with No Time to Die, as we talked about in our full No Time to Die episode. But I think a great example, I mean, this is the best part of the film regardless. A great example of the way that it kind of likes to play in that sandbox while still making it its own and, and modern and less problematic is the Ana de Armas sequence. Oh, definitely, yeah. That's that's classic Bond, and she is a is a classically beautiful kind of Bond girl where they're on the, they're both in their in their formal wear and they're in at this party in mm-hmm. this exotic locale and there's lots of action and fun, but it still has twists and turns in a way that's really satisfying. And I think No Time to Die in general is pretty good at that, even if I don't resonate with the overall story being told as much. Yeah, definitely, man. But yeah, we can definitely thank Kingsman for this. I also think we've talked about Mission Impossible a few times now on this episode and you've not really watched them, but that I think it exists in a weird space where it's not really a gentleman spy film, but there are elements of the gentleman spy genre. Like, I would argue that the first film kind of starts as a gentleman spy film, but then it quickly turns into a a, a more technical spy film that the rest of them kind of do, do similar stuff along the way, which I think we should revisit when we go through and we do the Mission Impossibles, talk about what elements of different spy genres kind of comprise them. Yeah, I think that would be incredibly interesting and definitely not all associated, definitely not at all associated with uh, how Tom Cruise carries himself as a real person and he definitely <laughs> does not womanize and he definitely does not have bursts of anger and violence. Of course not. Certainly not. He would never. Um, <laughs> Ethan Hunt. Ugh. 
<laughs> anyway, before I start waxing poetic about the Mission Impossible franchise, should we move on to our rec center this week? Let's do it. Now it's time to save the rec center, where we give you our weekly recommendations. Garrett, what do you got this week? Well, I think that actually, fittingly, and it's kind of something we already touched on, tonally, I have something that if you like the Kingsman franchise, I think you will enjoy. Um, a hyper-violent, R-rated, kind of crassly sexual genre piece, which is the Peacemaker television series. Uh, on HBO, it's a spin-off of the Suicide Squad, the James Gunn Suicide Squad that we both reviewed and, and enjoyed very much uh, on the show before. And I think it's just uh, shockingly well put together. I really enjoyed it. Frankly, after watching it, the Marvel show should be ashamed of how much like <laughs> real TV this felt, even though it was like James Gunn just slapping it together over the pandemic. Wow, wow, big big talk right over there. I kind of dismissed the Peacemaker show as soon as I heard about it. I mean, I, I genuinely liked Gunn's Suicide Squad, but this is an interesting endorsement. I, I'm going to have to check this out. I, I really think you should. I, I was dismissive of it as well, and I just kind of checked it out on a whim, and I really, really enjoyed it. And I don't want to get into it too much more because I think it has really satisfying twists and turns along the way. So revisit the Suicide Squad maybe, and then check out Peacemaker. Yeah, right on, right on. I will do that. But what do you have, Seamus? Well, just yesterday, me and you embarked on our own little quippy, fun action adventure and watched the Uncharted fan film starring our boy Nathan Fillion. And it was Mm. maybe, like, the most fun Uncharted thing that I've experienced. I mean, I guess maybe since it feels so Uncharted and it is, like, the first new Uncharted-y thing that I've experienced since, like, the fourth game came out. It was just such a refreshing, cool, really interesting, really well acted, really well put together for a a fan film. I mean, it is great. It's it's a short little 18-minute fun intro to what feels like it should be an entire series. I mean, it's, it's that well done and fun to me. Uh, I, I said I was going to save that until the premiere day of the Uncharted movie, but it, it was just, it, it was just such a fun thing. I will probably go and watch that again, probably whenever I replay the games, which will be pretty regularly, I would imagine. So if you haven't checked that out yet, it's on YouTube, the whole thing. It is wonderful. And I can't believe that nobody put Nathan Fillion in an actual Nathan Drake role. I, it blows my mind completely agree and we'll talk about that probably more when we talk about the uncharted movie in a few weeks yeah totally and we'll be comparing it to it whether it's fair to do with that or not so <laughs> but that wraps us up for this week's episode of pop culture reference if you want to reach the show on social media you can find us at pcr underscore podcast on twitter tiktok and instagram you can email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com like us on facebook subscribe to us on youtube wherever whatever platform you're listening on please give us a rating Uh, a thumbs up, a like, a comment, a review, whatever way you engage with the show, it really, really helps us out and boosts our numbers. Next week, we are, of course, going to be talking about The King's Man, a film neither of us have seen yet, and I have been waiting to see for the 15 years that it's taken it to finally come out (laughs) since the first trailer dropped. It truly truly feels like another No Time to Die scenario where we've just been hearing and talking about it for ages. So I'm I'm so excited too, man. It's going to be hopefully everything that we've been teased out for these last couple decades. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, hope, I hope it's as good as I want it to be. So I'm looking forward to it next week. Me too, man. Me too. Until then, I guess we'll see you next week. Adios, amigos. 